Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we're going to be talking about lions and tigers and bears, and go ahead and say it, you know you want to. Then we're talking about another much smaller organism, the mighty yeast. As always, we're going to try to build connections with two scientists from wildly different fields of research, the ecologist and the microbiologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on our program, we bring together two researchers from very different fields, often from very different parts of the world. Today, by happenstance, we've got two researchers on the line whose recent work comes out of the same university, but who are meeting for the first time on a public radio station hundreds of miles away from either one of them. It's not strange at all that these scientists don't know one another. They worked at a very large university in very different fields. The idea of this program, though, is to try to help break down some of the barriers that form between areas of science, to build connections and maybe some friendships, too. Joining us today from the University of Wisconsin at Madison is Adrian Trevis. He's an expert on the coexistence and conflicts between humans and wildlife, and especially carnivores like wolves, bears, big cats. And a lot of his research is aimed at helping avoid deadly interactions, which, we should mention, are usually deadly for the carnivores, not for the humans. Adrian Trevis, welcome to Undisciplined. Thanks, Matthew. Glad to be here. Also with us, no longer at Wisconsin, now at Oregon, is Emily Claire Baker, whose work focuses on yeast and, in particular, their mitochondria. Her most recent research helps us understand how some strains of yeast developed their love for the cold and their insatiability for sugar. And if that doesn't sound all that important to you, remember that these processes are at the heart of yeast's most vital mission in the world, making beer. Emily Claire Baker, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start today in Oz. Do you suppose we'll meet any wild animals? Mm, we might. Animals that, that eat straw? Uh, some, but mostly lions and tigers and bears. Lions? And tigers? And bears. Lions and tigers and bears? Oh my! When you're talking about the relationship between humans and large carnivores, a good place to start is one of the most famous scenes in The Wizard of Oz, which will celebrate its 80th anniversary this year. In the scene you just heard, of course, Dorothy, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow are feeling panicked about running into these predators. The irony, of course, is that humans have been far deadlier to these creatures than they have ever been to us. Adrian Trevis, a big part of your life's work has been trying to find ways to get humans and carnivores to coexist. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first become interested in this area of ecology? So you're absolutely right. Humans cause the majority of large carnivore mortality worldwide. And even here in the U.S., illegal killing or poaching of carnivores, uh, that is the major source of mortality for every wolf population across the U.S. Um, I'm interested in this because I'm a predator-prey ecologist. And you've studied lots of predators. You've studied wolves. You've studied big cats. You've studied bears. Is there one that just tugs at your heartstrings a little bit more than the others? No, they all do, because their plight is they're on the edge. Uh, we have to be super careful if we want our uh, gr children and grandchildren to enjoy the large carnivores that this planet uh, has evolved. Most every species is in some peril. This work has taken you all across the world. Are the issues with, say, wolves in North America, are those similar to the issues, for instance, like tigers in Asia or cheetahs in Africa? 
As far as I can tell, yeah, you put your finger on it, Matthew, that people are the same around the world. So the conflicts they come into with carnivores and their response, the, the traditional response is right, to kill a, a large carnivore. And sometimes the threats are just to property that people claim. Some of these carnivores actually eat crops, but sometimes those attacks are on livestock and sometimes threats to human safety. Other times people just feel afraid or they want to kill preemptively and the carnivore populations have been declining for centuries, if not millennia, because of that human penchant for lethal responses. And is the fact that the human population is burgeoning, there are more humans all the time right now, that puts us into greater contact, which probably puts us into greater conflict. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the growing human population is the number one threat to all the other life on the planet. So we have to learn to coexist, live more sustainably. I think we have to balance preservation of nature for future generations and for non-human life itself. We have to balance that with our growing demands on natural resources, on the fragile envelope of life that this planet supports. This isn't just important for the predators for their sake. It's important for our sake. It's important for the sake of the ecology because predators are an important part of the ecosystem. Can you talk about the role that they play and why that's so vital to everything else? The reason large predators are so important is that they exert this tendency to control the herbivores and the prey that they normally eat, and not just by uh, killing a few that they eat, but by scaring the survivors. And scared herbivores spend less time in one place. Uh, If they spend too long in one place, can really damage the vegetation for years and years. So predators keep their prey moving on the landscape and basically lead to a more uh, healthy and resilient ecosystem through the action of these top predators. Let's talk about some of your recent research. You headed down to Chile to look at what could be done to protect both wild pumas and domestic alpacas. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned? The point of the experiment was to evaluate whether non-lethal device could protect alpacas and llamas from predation by pumas and Andean foxes. This was a study led by a PhD student in my lab, Dr. Omar Orens. He's since graduated. He found, interestingly, that flashing lights did deter pumas successfully, but not the Andean foxes. So we're doing the first ever and largest randomized controlled experiment that's sometimes called the gold standard in other fields of research because it's the type of experiment that reduces biases in research. Omar and myself and other colleagues uh, conducted the first ever largest such experiment with a non-lethal device to protect livestock. It's not just the first ever experiment of this sort in Chile or with pumas. It's with with predators and, and prey in general. Is that correct? It is the first ever to achieve that highest gold standard of experimentation. You know, there might be people that would quibble with me because some good experiments have been done around the world, but none use this particular uh, highest standard of experimental design. As I said, the reason we aimed for that high standard was so that we could be sure we were recommending a method that truly worked. And even though maybe people might quibble, nobody would probably argue, nobody in the know would probably argue with the fact that we still just don't know enough about how to make all of these interactions safer for everybody. 
You know what's surprising is after 40 years of modern scientific study of this issue, how do we protect human interests from the threats posed by wild predators, there's still very scant evidence. And the evidence that's out there is of a lower standard than I just described for our Chilean study. So one major focus of my lab is to evaluate the local methods for protecting livestock or protecting crops from wildlife, evaluate them scientifically so we can feel confident that government investments of money are being well spent and that farmers aren't being misled by interventions that are less effective. You gave a congressional briefing last year on non-lethal methods for protecting livestock from predators. Have you found that there is an attentiveness to this issue, maybe an increasing attentiveness? Uh, It's getting slow acceptance and a slow hearing in the corridors of power, whether state or federal or tribal. On the other hand, nationwide, our research is getting unprecedented attention from non-governmental organizations and some of the agencies that have to manage wildlife. So I'm optimistic. We're going to see more and more of this type of research to prove methods are working or not working, and that we're going to see the dissemination of these methods to farmers who need them nationwide, maybe worldwide. That's Adrian Trevis, whose study on using flashing lights to deter puma attacks on livestock in Chile was recently published in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. Adrian, can you hold the line for just a bit while I chat with our next guest? You bet. Thanks. Let's talk about beer. This is grain, which any fool can eat, but for which the Lord intended a more divine means of consumption. Let us give praise to our maker and glory to his bounty by learning about beer. That is the actor Michael McShane as Friar Tuck in the 1991 movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which wasn't a great Robin Hood flick, but it did give us a great scene about beer. With the exception of water and tea, humans drink more beer than any other type of beverage. Americans alone drank 6.3 billion gallons of beer last year. And when I read that, I thought, I thought, well, that's impossible. And then I remembered that Wisconsin exists. And Wisconsin is where our next guest did research that helps us better understand the species of yeast that is at the heart of a whole lot of alcohol consumption across the globe. Emily Claire Baker, how did you wind up studying yeast? I knew I wanted a system that was, you know, easy to work with, you know, and grew really fast. I was pretty sure I wanted to work with yeast, and luckily I was able to find a mentor who, you know, his whole lab was uh, based around different parts of yeast ecology and evolution. And so I was really excited to get a chance to work with Chris Hittinger in Madison. Was Hittinger's lab built around the idea of understanding the organism that is at the heart of brewing, or was it built around the idea of understanding yeast and brewing is just one of the many things that comes out of an understanding of yeast. Yeah, I'd say it was more about understanding yeast in general. So there's other people in the lab who look at, you know, totally different species of yeast that aren't used in brewing, but you can use them for other things like biofuels. And it just happened to be that brewing is one of the things you can do with them. And that's where my project just happened to to head. So... You and Hittinger, uh, who's a professor of genetics at the University of Wisconsin, you have two new papers out. Let's take them one by one. First, in the journal Science Advances, your team identified the reason why one of the most common brewer's yeasts is cold tolerant. Can you talk about that? 
the yeasts are used to brew um, lager-style beers, which are the most commonly brewed type of beer. They are not actually a single species of yeast, but they're a hybrid between uh, these two different species. One is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is kind of the celebrity of the yeast world. It's the one that's used to bake bread and also used in a lot of different types of alcohol fermentation. And then um, that hybridized with this other species of yeast that is extremely divergent, that is usually only found in the wild. And those came together and produced this yeast that could brew at colder temperatures, which that trait we knew for a long time came from uh, this wild yeast. Next, in the journal PLOS Genetics, you created a new protein that can help yeast more aggressively ferment the sugars in barley malt, including some forms of sugar in the yeast that don't, well, they don't really like to be fermented much. Can you explain that? Going back to the second parent of lager yeast, um, it's actually um, a species called Saccharomyces eubianus. Um, and like you said, it doesn't really like to ferment the primary sugars that are found in uh, brewer's wort. Because there's so much interest in developing these yeasts, we said, well, let's see if we can evolve it to be able to use these sugars. And so what I did is I set up my yeast in media that had primarily the sugar maltotriose um, and a tiny bit of uh, just regular glucose, which is just very common sugar that pretty much every organism can use, I think. And I just let it grow very slowly on there with the hope that at some point a mutation would occur that would allow it to use maltotriose. And after uh, many months of waiting and waiting, I finally was able to find a strain that could use maltotriose. And so that was very that was a very exciting day. Now, you said it was many months. I understand that you investigated thousands of generation of yeast to find the right one. Is that right? Uh, yes. And how do you do... So as as the, the yeast are uh, growing in the culture, you're taking them out a little bit at a time and trying them against the sugar and then just waiting a little longer when it doesn't work? So it's actually even simpler than that. Most of the sugar in the media is maltotriose. And then there's a little tiny bit of uh, the other sugar that they can grow on. When you look at it, it's just kind of a little fuzzy. You can mostly see through the liquid. After a day or two, I would just take out a little bit and put it into fresh media and let it kind of do that again. But once you have a strain that can actually grow on the sugar that's the most abundant in the media, suddenly the media gets much harder to see through. It starts to get uh, turn opaque. Um, and it's really obvious that, oh, something is now growing in there. And so now you have this new strain of yeast. Is it different enough that it has a different name? Do you have a designator for it? Do you have a clever little cute name for it? We do not have a cute name for it. So one of the cool things about doing these sort of experimental evolution is that yeast, can you can freeze them down as a sort of fossil record. And so what I have for these yeasts is I have a vial of the culture that was the first group of yeast to show this trait, and that has some number designation that I, I can't remember. What can be done with this strain? This strain can be used to brew, as you probably would guess, um, beer. Um, and so you can actually brew with the parent strain that gave rise to this particular strain, but this one can also brew with and. On the day I defended my thesis, they actually had a test batch of this ready to go. And so I was actually able to test this beer 
right after I got my PhD, and so I can I can say that it it tastes pretty good. At least uh, I I like it. Did the committee get to try this beer? Because I like I feel like this would be a really good <laughs> idea to provide the committee ma- members a lot of alcohol. <laughs> uh, no, I did not know that the the beer was ready, uh, and so my committee did not get to sample it, but maybe we would have gotten through the defense part faster if I had had provided them with the beer. But it went well anyway. You passed, right? Yes. yes. Excellent. And now you are at the University of Oregon. What are you doing there? So now I am looking at evolutionary conflict between human and primate proteins and bacterial proteins. And I got to ask, how do you go from yeast to that? I mean, I consider myself, you know, to primarily be an evolutionary biologist with, you know, a a strong background in genetics. And so, you know, all organisms have genes, all organisms make proteins, um, and all organisms evolve. And so there are a lot of differences between uh, between the systems, but at the same time, there's a lot of similarities as well. That's Emily Claire Baker, whose recent studies on the evolutionary roots and future potential of brewer yeasts were published in Science Advances and PLOS Genetics. Emily, there is someone I'd like you to meet. Is that okay? Yeah. In that case, Emily, this is ecologist and friend to carnivores everywhere, Adrian Trevis. And Adrian, this is microbiologist and friend to beer drinkers everywhere, Emily Claire Baker. Nice to meet you, Emily. Nice to meet you, too. Hey, Emily, you were listening in as I was chatting with Adrian. Was there a question that you wished I had asked? Yeah, so one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about, you look at a lot of different predators, um, and I was wondering, how do the different behaviors of all these animals, the different ways they deal with challenges and their environment, does that impact the types of methods that you use to try and deter them? We do tailor our interventions to the cognitive abilities and the social systems of the predators that we're working with. But more often, we're looking at how intact the ecosystem is. If wild prey have been depleted, if there are agricultural crops everywhere, and that kind of thing. And when I was listening to you describe your research, questions for me came up about whether you've been approached by the beer industry and are there efforts at marketing sustainable beers with a new name that can sort of play up your research as a selling point for their clientele? So there is a a brewing class for undergraduates at the University of Wisconsin. And one of their projects is to use this locally sourced yeast in order to uh, make a new brew. That is so cool. I I bet that's heavily oversubscribed. There's probably a waiting list. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've heard it's very hard to get into. Uh, So you had mentioned earlier about how, you know, looking at the environment and, you know, the environment, these predators who uh, eventually go on to prey on livestock or, you know, endanger humans, they find themselves in. And, you know, kind of that was something I had been wondering about is, you know, how shaping the ecosystem around farms, what role that plays in um, deterring, deterring these interactions? Yeah, it's a super good question. Let me give an example from research on cougars. It's actually from Washington State, but not far from you. When 
researchers began studying what happens when you kill a cougar because it has attacked cattle, what happens next, they found that that one resident, often a, a resident territorial male cougar getting killed, opens up a vacancy that's filled by two or three younger male cougars who are looking, they're jockeying for position, like vying to be the top dog or the top cat, I guess, territorial male in the future. But that can take years to resolve. And in the meantime, they are unfamiliar with the habitat and the territory. And they're sort of trying to dodge each other until they're ready to, you know, fight on their own terms. And that process actually leads to more cattle predation because the newcomers are not familiar with how to hunt the wild prey in this unfamiliar territory. Plus, they're engaged in this kind of skirmish war with their rivals for long periods. And what's the most predictable food out there? Well, crops and livestock because we don't move them around very much. And they're not as well protected, maybe, um, as wild prey are. So the environment and how we deplete it can really materially affect the risk we're posing to ourselves and our own property. A second example of this comes from Michigan, where a PhD student in my lab, Francisco Santiago Avila, examined and evaluated the lethal control practices of the state of Michigan, where the state was killing wolves implicated in attacks on cattle. And Francisco noticed that the neighboring farms suffered higher losses of cattle after a wolf was killed on one particular property. So one farmer might be happy seeing a dead wolf, but meanwhile, his or her neighbors might be experiencing higher risk and higher losses because the surviving wolves are adjusting to the changing conditions and cause us more problems than we started with. Adrian just mentioned adjustment and adaptation, and that got me to thinking that's really what's happening when we're watching organisms evolve. Now, Adrian would have a really hard time watching wolves or bears or pumas evolve because that that's a slow process and these are relatively long-lived organisms. But Emily, you have an opportunity to see this adjustment and adaptation and even to play with this adjustment and adaptation when you're working with yeast because their lifespans are quite a bit shorter and they reproduce quite quickly. And you've seen the impact that a few thousand generations can have on yeast behavior quite drastically, pushing them to adjust and adapt because you're feeding them different kinds of sugars and trying to promote this change. Are yeast a good stand-in, do you think, for understanding evolutionary change? Yeah, I think so. Maybe not, you know, specifically predator-prey in this uh, type of situation. But I think in a lot of ways, yeah, yeast and, you know, other microbes, because they have these such short generation times can be a really great way to look at these sort of processes and I think there's some overlap here that's kind of interesting. Uh, But correct me if I'm wrong, Emily. Um, It feels like what little I read of studies of the microbiome, some of the recent research is starting to question whether we should be applying these broad-range antibiotics that kill every species because sometimes elements of the microbiome that are harmful to us can bounce back more quickly than the ones we want. And I think the overlap here is that ecologists are starting to question what actually happens when we kill a lot of organisms. We see these uh, sort of cascade domino effects that are unpredicted, undesirable, and can be devastatingly hard to repair. Is there any overlap in in your world of, of the microbe? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. I've been getting a lot more into these sort of dynamics, and that is definitely something I've been reading more about is 
this idea that instead of trying to get rid of one bad microbe, you know, maybe promoting particular community ecology is a more stable route to go because um, the, what they find is that, you know, particular communities can actually deter invasion by these uh, pathogenic microbes better than if you just wipe out the entire microbiome and it's just a free-for-all. I mean, does that tie in? Like, people are actually recommending fermented foods like beer for, for our gut health. Is that right? I think there's still a lot more work that needs to be done there, but I kind of like that idea of, you know, being able to drink a fermented beverage and promote better health. Unfortunately, a lot of beer is filtered, so you're probably not going to get much from the yeast that are used to make your, your typical beer. Oh, <laughs> Turning back, though, to this idea of learning from the microbiome and applying that to the macro world, at least the macro world that we can see, it seems to me there's a lot that can be learned from how uh, how organisms consume in their environment when confronted with times of plenty and when confronted with times of, of sparsity that can be applied to the other environment, Go- going both ways, I'm guessing. Many of the questions that are cropping up about why people kill wildlife are are closely followed by um, questions about, well, what happens? Are we really sure that it's effective to kill wildlife? So in some cases, maybe just cleaning up human refuse and garbage would control a problem with wildlife without requiring uh, any kind of lethal intervention. So that's a hot topic in my area. I want to thank you both for this conversation. Emily Claire Baker, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. And Adrian Trevis, thank you. It's been my pleasure. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Go have big ideas.